Hey, you know, if, if you're visiting with us tonight, we just, we want to just share, we are passionate about Christ. If there is anything that we're going to be enthusiastic about in this life, can it be that our Creator sent His Son to die for us so that we could live forever? There is an enthusiasm that we want to well up in our hearts that's big and overflowing. And we cheer for our kids because we want our children to grow up with a sense of permission to be conspicuous about their passion for Christ in the world in which they live. The world gives us permission to be excited all the time, right? When Ethan scored that touchdown today, come on, I'm jumping up out of my chair, I'm cheering, and everybody that sees that says, hey, come on, he should be excited. That's his son. When the world sees us passionate about Christ, even if they don't under, understand it, there should be something inside of them that says, come on, I want some of that. I don't understand it, but I love it, and I want to know God the way that they know God. And so, Father, we just lift up those children tonight that are in that classroom, and we say, let it be that in their hearts tonight, that there's going to be a sense of freedom, that they're going to gain some ground, oh God, in their passion and their hunger for you, that when they step outside of that room and they go out into the world, that they're going to have the courage to say, I'm not afraid to be seen as an abandoned, passionate worshiper of God. In Jesus' name, come on. Amen. Amen. Greg, do you need to get me to get a different mic? We're good? Okay, we're good. Come on, it's hard being in the tech booth, isn't it? It is a lot of responsibility. Can you give Greg a hand? Come on, he's working hard back there tonight. He's working hard. Working hard. Well, we're excited about this series that we're on. One of the reasons why we've been, been looking forward to this series is because we knew it was going to create an opportunity for us to talk about one of the things that we're the most passionate about here at the City Life Church, and that's drawing a distinction between believing and being. Drawing a distinction between believing and being. And being. We have to believe in something before we can become something, but God doesn't want us to just stop in our beliefs. He wants those beliefs to begin to instruct us in the way that we begin to live. We believe so that we can become. Tonight, after service, where's Emily Brogdon? Is she still in here? She was up on the keys. Come on, we're doing some premarriage counseling with her. Her and Tyler are just weeks away from their wedding. Come on. They don't want to just spend the rest of their life believing about being married, right? They want to be married. They need to believe a lot of things about marriage, but they want to become married. They want to step, step into the experience of what they believe. Here's Emily right here. We were just talking about you, Emily. Now she's, why were they talking? We're not going to tell her, though, because, you know. No. We were talking about you and Tyler getting married. We're excited for you guys. Come on. We want you as a Christ follower not just to believe the right things about Jesus. We want you to become like him. God doesn't just want us to believe the right things about his son. He wants us to be like him. And part of what has to happen inside of us in order for that to take place is that we've got to be radical in certain areas of our life. Jesus wasn't the mediocre Messiah. He was the radical Messiah. 
He was radical about generosity. He was radical about forgiveness. He was radical about his love for God. And if we are going to let our beliefs take us into a place of being, then there are some parts of our life that we've got to just turn loose a little bit, turn up the volume in our heart. And so this series, every week, we're picking a word that spells radical for us here at the City Life Church. We talked about the radical vow, V-O-W is how we spell radical. The radical vow of devotion. We talked about radical unity. The radical view is what we've done over the last three weeks. And so tonight we're going to spell radical, G-R-A-C-E, a radical grace. So when you hear the word grace, we like participation here at the City Life Church. When you hear the word grace, what's something that comes to mind? Slip up your hand and I'll point at you. Warren. Sufficiency. Jen. Unmerited favor. Come on. Is that what you were going to say? Come on. That's good. Unmerited favor is so good we'll say it twice. Matt. Amazing grace. Yes. Somebody else. Nathaniel. Forgiven. Somebody else. When you hear the word grace... Chuck, 10-run rule in softball. There you go. Come on. If you've ever been on a team that is hoping for the slaughter rule to kick in, then you understand the word grace. Somebody else? Sharon. Unmerited forgiveness. Come on. That's good. Is there a hand over here in the shadows? Yes. Patience. That's good, Alice. Patience. One more. Come on. Sheree. Sustainable. Yeah. Hey, can we just, can, you know, Sheree, I want to give you a giveaway tonight. Come on, we like to do giveaways. Sheree's in medical school in India, right? You're in India. He's here on break visiting with us. So here's an iTunes card so you can download some music and take back with you. So he said, medical school is killing me. I said, that's good so that you won't kill anybody else when you get out of there. So come on. We prayed over him. Was it a year ago, just that he has a call on his life to take the gospel to the nations of the world. He's in medical school not for a vocation, but because of a destiny. And so we're excited to see that destiny unfold. So it's good to have you here with us tonight. So, Grace, it's radical. I've got some friends that live in Bumpus, Virginia. Anybody know where Bumpus is? Yeah. Even if you do, you should say no, because you don't want to be. So when they're giving people directions to their house, this is what they say. 295 around Richmond, get on Route 33, uh, heading out towards Montpelier, you get to Route 54, hang a left and just keep driving. And as you're driving, eventually there's going to be this overwhelming sense that you have that you've gone too far. There's going to be a, a, a self-preservation is going to kick in. Surely we have missed our turn. There's going to be something that wells up inside of you that's going to want to slam on the brake, do a 180 in the middle of the street and drive back the other way. When you have that feeling... Keep driving because you're only halfway there, right? They live way out, way out. And that's what radical grace is for us. Radical grace goes far beyond forgiveness, past absolution, onward from acquittal and amnesty. And when you think that you have driven too far theologically, keep on going. All the things that you said about grace, come on, we say yes and amen to those things. But what we hope to do tonight is to deepen your belief in grace, not just so that you can be more informed, but so that you can live better. We don't want to just give you more information about grace, although it has to start there. But we want to 
to impart something, a revelation of grace in you tonight so that you can go out and be a radical grace person so that it characterizes you, so that it defines you. And what we want to say to you tonight at our first step is that forgiveness is just the first step of grace. And for so many people, they spend their whole lives believing that this idea of forgiveness and absolution is the end and the, the beginning and the end of grace. And we want you to know that the forgiveness of God when it comes to grace is just the start. We know it's the start because we read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it says God saved you by his grace when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Verse 9, salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Grace begins with forgiveness. It is the beginning of our journey as devoted followers of Christ where he says to us, come on, you're forgiven from your past. In so many different theological streams, that's all that they teach about grace, and it's not wrong, it's just incomplete. And so we want to challenge you tonight to believe that radical grace is so much more. Romans 3.23, come on. Where are my Baptist theologians in here? The Roman road. Come on, Sonia, what's Romans 3.23 say? Do you know Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Somebody else, somebody give me Romans 6.23. Anybody know that one? Come on, that's good. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's drawing a distinction, isn't he? For the wage of sin is death, but the gift, the difference between the wage and a gift. When you get your paycheck at the end of the week, you're not getting a gift, you're getting a wage. Well, depending on how you perform, maybe it was a gift, but for most of you, come on. It, it's a wage. You've earned it. You deserve it. In a spiritual sense, God says to us what we've earned because of the sinfulness of our heart. Sin is not just the things that we do that we shouldn't and the things that we don't we should. Sin is this condition of our humanity that says, God, I want to do it my own way. That's the essence of sin. It's the part of us that stands in rebellion against God. And God says that because all of us suffer from that, what we've earned, what we deserve is eternal death. But grace comes in and forgives and gives us something that we could never earn ourselves eternal life. And as grand as that is, and as glorious as that is, what we want to say to you tonight is that's just the beginning. Come on. We understand the forgiveness of grace, but there is more. There is much, much more. We're going to hit three of them tonight. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. The first one is this. A radical grace conquers. A radical grace conquers. Let me read you this verse out of Revelation. This is Revelation 19. Beginning in verse 11, it says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one could, ex could know except himself. And he wore a robe stained with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. And from his mouth came a sharp sword so that with it he might strike the nations. 
He will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of, of God the Almighty. And his robe on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. See, that's not the verse that we read about Jesus when our kids are having a bad dream at night and can't go back to sleep, right? Jesus, come on, he's got a sword that comes out of his mouth and his robe is stained with the blood of the nation. So just going back to sleep, everything's going to be all right. And that's not the picture we're supposed to give our kids of Christ in those moments. But you better believe at some point they need to have that picture of Christ. They need to know that he's not just a consoler. They need to know that he's a conqueror. They need to know that Jesus isn't just the one who forgives us because of our humanity. We need to give our children, come on, and we ourselves need to have a vision of Christ as a conquering king that he wants to come in after he forgives and to conquer those things in our lives that have controlled us. A radical grace, it conquers. We're going to be digging around a lot in these couple of verses tonight for each of our three points. So let me introduce it to you. It's Ephesians 4, 7 through 8. This is out of the Amplified Bible. That's why it has all the parenthetical clauses in it. It says, yet grace, God's unmerited favor, was given to each of us individually, not indiscriminately, but in different ways, in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and bounteous gift. We're going to talk about that in point number two. Verse 8, therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He led a train of vanquished foes and he bestowed gifts on men. The Apostle Paul here in this letter that he's writing to the church at Ephesus is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. It says, you ascended to the heights, taking away captives, and you received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, so that the Lord God might live there. The psalmist is writing this to remind us that God doesn't just want to forgive us, but he wants to come in, he wants to live in our hearts, and he wants to reign in our lives. We need to have a picture of God as the great forgiver. We need to have a picture of Christ as the great forgiver. But we also need to have a picture of Jesus Christ coming in, setting up a throne, and us saying to him, rule my life. There should be something inside of us that longs for Christ to come in and conquer our humanity and to be in control of who we are. And so when the Apostle Paul is trying to teach the church of Ephesus about grace, he's trying to make sure that they go beyond forgiveness. He's trying to make sure that they understand so that he reaches back into Psalm 68 and he says, Jesus is a conquering king. In the same way, come on, it's hard for us to get it today because we kind of live more in a modern world, but in ancient times where empires would go and they would conquer other nations. It was the common practice of the day. They would raise an army, they would go into a foreign land, and they would take it by force. Paul is saying that's what you and I need Jesus to do for us. We need to say, Jesus, we want you to come in with your army of righteousness, and I need you to conquer my humanity because I can't defeat it by myself. I don't want, Jesus, you to just to forgive me. I want you to conquer me. I want you to change me. Come on here to Genesis 3, 1 through 6. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. Genesis 3, verses 1, 1 through 6. It says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? 
that you can't eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said, who we know to be Satan. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. In the story, we find where the very first people on earth became held hostage to their humanity. We see the very first moment in time where people gave themselves to their humanity. It's important that we understand this because the, Satan in the beginning of time, he didn't ask them to worship him. He asked them to worship themselves. He didn't make them Satanists. He made them something worse. He made them humanists. He tempted them to believe that they didn't need God. And in that moment when they rejected him, they stepped into a place of rebellion. And because we're all descendants of Adam and Eve, the Bible tells us that you and I, when we're born, we're born into a place of spiritual captivity. We are born into a place where we are held hostage by our humanity. And we need Jesus Christ to set us free. We can't figure our way out of it. We can't earn our way out of it. We can't muster up the strength and the ability to overcome those parts of who we are that stands at odds with God. We need Jesus Christ to come in and say to you and I, yes, you're forgiven for holding God at arm's length up until this point in your life. Come on, I died for you. The punishment that you deserve, the wage that you deserve, I took that. I want to give you the gift of eternal life. But he keeps talking. Then he says to us, and I want to come in and set up a throne inside of your heart, and I want to rule and reign inside of you. I want to be in charge of who you are, that you do not have to live the rest of your life held hostage to your humanity. Listen to what Paul here wrote to the church of Rome. It says, but there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. We just talked about that. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ, verse 21, so that as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace, does it say forgives? No, because he's already talked about the forgiveness of grace. He wants Rome and God wants us to understand today that grace has to have a conquering presence in our lives. Now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and I are going to be ruled by something whether we like it or not. You're either going to be ruled by your humanity or you're going to be ruled by your Savior who sits upon the throne of your life. And it's only when he sets up the throne on our heart do we have the hope of eternal life, not just to come, but like we say here, come on, heaven on earth. I don't want a grace that forgives me and leaves me held hostage. I want a grace that is going to conquer my humanity. I don't want a, I don't want a grace that says you're forgiven and I hope everything else works out for you. 
I'll see you when you die and you step through the pearly gates. That's not the grace that the Bible speaks of. Can you imagine if through my own negligence or my own naivete, maybe I let some people come into my house and they end up taking my family hostage. Got my iPhone, come on, and my ankle holster. Pull it out, I text Kevin Tully, my friend. Kevin, my family's being held hostage, I need your help. So he calls dispatch, dispatch calls the Chick-fil-A over by CNU because that's where all the police are. If you're wanted for a crime, do not go to the Chick-fil-A by seeing you. All right, boys, let's set aside those waffle fries. We've got a pastor to rescue. So they hop into their cruisers. They pull over to Ashridge Lane and Summer Lake, and they get on the right. The <laughs> Reverend Michaud, we've got good news for you. Your house is surrounded, and you're forgiven for getting your family into this terrible predicament. I hope that hostage situation works out for you. Okay, boys, our work's done here. Let's go get a milkshake. Come on, is that the story of a rescue and grace that you want to hear about in the news? No, 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 no. You want that family to be liberated. God does not show up into your world and say, I'm going to forgive you of all the things that you've done out of the selfishness of your heart and leave you held captive to your humanity all the days of your life. Jesus is a conquering king. There is a side of Jesus that says, suffer the little children to come unto me, and he gathers them onto his lap. There's a consoling side to who Christ is, but we need to have a revelation of Christ that's much bigger than that. We need to have a revelation of the revelation, Jesus. Who has a sword that comes out of his mouth, who rides a horse, whose name is faithful and true, and who has the power to set us free. It does not mean that we will never struggle with sin, but it does mean that we should not struggle with the same sins forever. We break free from these so that we can move on to conquer something else. God calls us to stand with him and exercise dominion and authority over our lives. Grace forgives, but grace also conquers. Come on, number two, a radical grace, it confers. A radical grace confers. All right, Ephesians 4, 7 and 8, it says, Yet grace, God's unmerited favor, was given to each of us individually, not indiscriminately, but in different ways in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and bounteous gift. What does that mean? It means that the grace of Jesus has gifts that he wants to give to you. Come on, Ethan, turn in nine. Today, he woke up with an expectation of more than a happy birthday. You with me? He's waking up with an expectation of cash. He's waking up with an expectation of a present. He's waking up with an expectation of gifts. You and I, the moment that we make a vow of devotion to Jesus Christ, we experience his forgiveness. We say, we want you to come in and conquer my humanity. I want you to rule and reign. There should be something inside of us that says, Jesus, I believe that you have gifts that you want to give to me. I believe that you want to impart something to me that's going to equip me and enable me to begin to get busy building your kingdom. This idea of, of it's in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and bounteous gift means that Jesus gets to pick which gifts he gives to you. It's important that we don't look at the gifts of other people and say, I wish I had that gift. Come on. 
There's a gift that he gave to you that he's picked out. He's the creator of the universe. And if he did not give you somebody else's gift, it's not because he forgot you or because he didn't know you, because he's got something special that he wants to give to you that he's not given to anybody else. We can't walk around envying the gifts of others. We've got to celebrate the gift that we've been given. Come on. And if you don't know what that gift is and you track with us, come on, we're going to help you figure that out. He's got a gift that he wants to give to you. The rich and bounteous gift of who he is. See, ultimately we see whatever gift he gives to us as a treasure because Christ is our treasure. So whatever he offers us, we begin to celebrate. And he doesn't give indiscriminately, meaning he's just throwing it out there. Come on, like the candy at next weekend, we're just throwing it out there for kids to grab. Come on, he picks the exact one that you're supposed to have and he deposits it into your life. This is another reason why the Apostle Paul reaches back into Psalm 68, 18. If you notice that in Ephesians 4, Paul talks about gifts being given, but if you actually read the psalm carefully, you see that it doesn't really say that. It says, you ascended to the heights, taking away captives. This is the idea of a conquering Christ, a conquering grace. You receive gifts from people, it says, even from the rebels so that the Lord God might live there. Did Paul get his scripture mixed up? Or worse, did Paul say, ah, these people from Ephesus, they don't know the word of God. I'll just turn it just a little bit to fit my message. Is that what he's doing? Come on, you know he's not. They're talking about the same thing. He's talking about the ancient practice in ancient world when a conquering king would come in and, and he would win the war. Even the people that were in rebellion against him who now capitulated to him, everybody would bring a gift to the king. Everybody would bring a gift as a sign of we are going to submit to your rule. That's what this is talking about here in Psalm 68 and the idea that we bring the gift of our will. We bring the gift of our whole life. And then what Paul is pointing back to in Psalm 68 when he's referencing this from Ephesians 4 is that in ancient times that king would in turn, he would not keep all those gifts for himself. That king would in turn begin to give and apportion those gifts to his loyal subjects so that they would have the resources to step into that war-torn region and to begin to rebuild that land. When we come into the presence of Christ, experience his grace, experience his forgiveness, then we step into the part of his grace where we say, Jesus, we want you to rule and reign in our lives. One of the things that he begins to do out of the giftedness of who he is, he begins to apportion out to you abilities and talents and passions and desires that enable you to step into the broken world and fulfill the purpose that he calls you to. Come on, Ephesians 4, 2 through 8 and 10. Let's read it all together. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. That's the, that's the consoling side of grace, the forgiving side of grace. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. But he keeps going, for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Even before you were born, God has dreamed of the work that he's going to put into your hands. He's dreamed a dream for the life that he wants you to live. And come on, this is the theme that we're going into in 2012. Psalm 124.1, if the Lord had not been on our side, we're calling it living in the gap. That we want to live in the gap in between what we can and who he is. 
The things that God is going to call you to do are far beyond whatever you could do of your own strength. There is a desperate need for each of us to fulfill our destiny, to rest upon whatever gifts he deposits into our lives. Grace confers. Grace gives each of us a gift. Listen to this verse here. I'm going to give you a couple here. This is 2 Corinthians 9.8. It says, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Listen to this verse. The notes are always on the website. If we move quicker than you're taking notes, you can download it. All the verses are there. James 2, 17 through 18. So also faith, if it does not have works. Come on, this is the Amplified Bible again. Deeds and actions of obedience to back it up. By itself is destitute of power, inoperative, dead. Verse 18, but someone will say to you then, you have faith and I have good works. Now you show me your alleged faith apart from any good works, if you can, and I by good works of obedience will show you my faith. Grace confers a gift. There is a gift that he wants to give each of you. There is a deposit of a gift of God, come on, in Pastor Justin's life that's not in anybody else's life in this whole world. Because he's got a destiny and a calling that none of us share. He calls us into a place of standing with him to build his kingdom on this earth. And he says to you and I, and I'm going to give you everything that you need to do it. You might inventory your life right now and have an overwhelming sense of inadequacy that you could ever do anything for God. I would say you're in the best place you could ever be. Come on. Because we're never going to be able to accomplish the things that God asks for us in our humanity. Our humanity has to be conquered. We have to learn how to be desperate for the presence of God inside of us and the gifts that he's going to pour out into us so that we can step into the world that we're supposed to step into. Make the changes that we're supposed to make. So come on, so just praying for this service today. God just dropped a couple of people on my heart. We don't do this very much in our service, so I'm just going to ask you to, to bear with me. But Scotty and Saber, just God was stirring my heart for you guys as I was praying today. That there's a gift of evangelism that he's deposited into your life. You're going to be reachers for the kingdom. And there's going to be a net that's cast from your life that's going to gather scores and scores and scores of people into the kingdom of God. That other people's journeys are going to start because of the journey that you're on. It's a gift that he's deposited in you. It's a measure of his grace. It's a measure of his grace. Where's Amanda Silver? There's Amanda. Come on, we know that you've been on a journey of disappointment. Come on. But the biggest moment of faith being deposited in our lives are when we walk through seasons of disappointment. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. If you want to be a person of faith, you've got to be willing to endure disappointment. Because if everything that you want comes tomorrow, come on, then you're never going to have a capacity for faith. And I believe that God's putting a deposit of faith in you that is going to be a gift to this world. That you're going to be able to believe for things that other people would say, Amanda, that's impossible. But you're going to have a gift for faith that's going to be infectious to other people around you. And great things are going to come because of the faith that God's put into your life. Come on. Warren and Sandy. We know that you've been on a journey. You've been on a journey. And I believe that God is depositing a gift of mercy into your life. There's a gift of mercy that God is teaching you to give. 
that other people are going to look at people and say they don't deserve it. And you're going to say to them, hey, it's not about deserving anything. It's about mercy. And the only way that we can learn how to give mercy is to have people close enough to us that we're invested in who disappoint us deeply. And then we're stepped into a place of having to forgive them far beyond what they ever could hope to deserve so that we can be a witness to the world of what mercy looks like. And God is teaching you guys how to, to walk in a place of mercy that the world needs to see, a radical mercy. A radical mercy. Come on. Where's Cord Walls? I have one more. Is Cord in here? He just stepped out. All right, he missed out then. No, I'm just kidding. Come on, he's going to listen to the podcast. He's going to listen to the podcast. There's Cord. Come on. All right, I'm just sharing some things with people that God put on my heart. So he's walking in cold, right? So this is Cord's right here. There's a gift, there's a pastoral calling that God has put upon your life, Cord. That we believe that God has put in you, Cord, the ability to stir up the giftings in other people, to cast vision, to bring correction, to teach God's word. It's a gift of pastoring that he's deposited into you. It's because of his grace. You've not earned it. You didn't try out for it. You didn't apply for it. But it's something that has to do with your calling, and he's given you the gift to fulfill it. Come on. And one day we're going to be speaking those words over your life by way of a title. But before then, come on, you're going to walk it out in faithfulness, and we believe it in Jesus' name. Come on. So before we move on, let's just pray. Father, we know that every person in this room, if we had the time, you could give some insight prophetically into the gift that you've put into their life. Father, I pray that as we sit in this room together tonight, that all of us would say, I want someone to speak like that over me. I want, I want someone to say things like that about me in a room. Come on, and what God is saying to some of you, which is where we're going in just a minute, if you want that to happen, you've got to learn how to show up and be in the room so that those things can be spoken over your life. So, Father, we say let it be for each of us that we're all going to find ourselves in a setting, in a place, whether it be tomorrow or a year from now or whenever it's going to come by divine providence, that words like that are going to be spoken over every person's life, that grace confers a gift so that we can fulfill a purpose and fulfill a destiny. Come on, in Jesus' name. Eric Reese's book, we're huge fans of this book. It's called Shape. It stands for Spiritual Gifts, Heart's Desire, Natural Abilities, Personality, and Life Experience. God gives me all of these because there is a work that needs to be done. You can go to www.shapediscovery.com. Is that God wants you and I to discover the shape of our lives because function follows form. There are gifts that the grace of God puts inside of you. And as you begin to have a revelation of what those gifts are and what they look like, you're going to begin to see the great purpose that he has called you to live. Jesus Christ's grace for you is not just for your forgiveness. He wants to conquer your humanity. And as he's conquering your humanity, he wants to confer. He wants to give. He wants to pour out gifts into your life that will equip you and empower you so that you can fulfill the work and the destiny that you're called to. All right, number three. It's our last one. A radical grace, it convenes. A radical grace convenes. Ephesians 4, 7, and 8. Here we go again. It says, yet grace, God's unmerited favor, was given to each 
of us individually, not indiscriminately, but in different ways in proportion to the measure of Christ's rich and bounteous gift. Listen to what it says. Verse 8, therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led captive. Come on, he's a conqueror. He's a gift giver. And he led a train of vanquished foes and bestowed gifts on men. It's important that we see it's here in the text. Paul's trying to teach it. We're going to dig some other verses out in just a minute. But Paul is trying to help us understand not just a grace, but a radical grace. A radical grace, it consoles, but it also conquers. It also converts, but it also convenes. Every one of these people here in this prophetic picture is given a gift by God, but they're given that gift as they stand in community with the people that are around them. The picture here that Paul is giving to us as he points back to Psalm 68 is not this idea of Jesus picking out one person by themselves, isolating them, giving them a gift, and launching them on their way to go about and do something individually. It's a picture of a crowd of people that he has gathered together into a place of authentic community, and he begins to minister by giving a gift to each one individually, but only to the degree that they're part of the crowd. Only to the degree that they are a part of a community. The grace of God calls you to be a part of a spiritual family. He didn't save you for you to live out your life as a spiritual orphan. Ephesians 1, 1 through 2 says this. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus. Not just one person. He's writing to a church who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Verse 2 May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace. These first couple of verses isn't just Paul warming up before he gets to meat of the letter. This isn't Paul just trying to, to occupy some time, you know, with a nice little salutation here before he launches in. Now, come on, he's teaching from the first stroke of the pen. He's saying to the church of Ephesus, there is a measure of God's grace that you will never know unless you remain together. If you venture out onto your own, will you be forgiven? Sure. If you venture out onto your own, will there be a, a degree of conquering that you will gain over your humanity? Absolutely. Will there be a, a, a revelation and some measure of effectiveness in the gift that he deposits into you as you fulfill your destiny? Sure. But he's saying to you and I, if we want to experience a radical grace, if we want a biblical grace, if we want to experience the fullness of grace that he has for us, we must be a part of a church that we can call home. Listen to this. Of the 27 New Testament books that Paul, of the 27 New Testament books that are written, Paul wrote 13 of them. Come on. And all of his were written for a church. Paul's revelation of grace had no meaning outside of the context of community. Come on, I know that's a bold statement. You might say, well, I thought he wrote a letter to Philemon. I know, but right in the first verse it says, and to the church that's meeting in your home. You might say, well, I thought he wrote some stuff to Timothy, and I thought he wrote some stuff to Titus. He did. But the reason why he wrote those letters is so there could be better pastors of the church that they were called to serve. Every time God called Paul to write a letter and to give us instruction, it was instruction that was given to the church. Why is that? Because God's trying to help us to see if we're going to walk into the fullness of grace, we will not discover that by ourselves. We need the people in the room with us. All right, here we go. If you're looking for a culminating text for the things that we're talking about, come on, we're in the home stretch. Listen to this. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. 
We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. There's a lot of conjecture on that. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, but we know the ultimate author, like all the other books, come on, was the spirit of the living God. All right, here we go. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he has inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. So this is talking about Jesus' death on our behalf. We were talking about Romans 3.23 and 6.23. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith that our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Come on, it's a lot of poetic language talking about the forgiveness of grace. Verse 23, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us be concerned about one another. Listen to where it goes. So it's grace, forgiveness, grace, forgiveness, grace, forgiveness. And here it goes. Listen to this. Let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Come on. Verse 25, not staying away from our meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Come on, right here in just a group of verses, it's all packed in tight by the Spirit of God. Everything that we've been talking about tonight, right here in one text. That the grace of God, it forgives, but it also conquers. He does not want to leave us the way that we are. He wants us to be free from our humanity. This idea that he has gifts that he wants to give so that we can get busy doing the good works that he's called us to do. And there, right in the home stretch in that text, we find it where the writer of Hebrews says, and do not forsake the assembling together of one another. Why? Because there is a measure of grace that we only find when we sit in a room like this next to one another. I'm going to share this statement. I want to share your stories. We close. You are a spiritually oxygenating presence in the house. Let me say that again. You are a spiritually oxygenating presence in the house. So about a year before Vanessa and I were married, we were celebrating 15 years in May. So about 16 years or so ago, I was living in the inner city of Richmond. I bought a home. It was a HUD home that was built in 1918. It was in a state of disrepair. And, and uh, when I was praying about the neighborhood that I was going to live in, I, I felt like God spoke to me and said, a well-lit room doesn't need another candle. And I knew that meant for me that I was supposed to go live in a dark place. And so that became a decade-long journey for me. And the house that, that, I, that, I, that I bought was in such a state of disrepair. It was going to have to re, you know, repair to a, a little at a time. And so part of our journey and my journey before I was married and, and we were living there together that we were active with a homeless ministry and I would bring in guys that had made decisions for Christ and they would live with me. It was a, it was a huge house. It had probably three, four empty bedrooms and I would get guys in each of those bedrooms and trying to help them get back onto their, onto their feet. And so uh, it's about a, a week. I was just feeling terrible. Some type of flu I thought maybe and during the day it would go away and, and uh then at night, I would just feel miserable. That went on for about a week or so. And so one afternoon over the, the weekend, I just called in to check in with home and said, I, I just, I, something, I just don't feel right. There's something about me. Asking my parents to pray. and said, I'm just going to take a nap. I'm just going to take a nap. And my mom says, you know what? I, I don't, I'm going to come get you. We're going to go to the emergency room. 
So she comes, and by the time she gets there, I'm so disoriented. I'm on my hands and knees in the house because I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall over. I can't stand up. And so something was terribly wrong with me. We didn't know what it was. And so we go to the emergency room, right, and about four days later I get to see a doctor, right, if you've ever been to an ER. Because I don't have an arrow sticking out of my ear, right, so you have to be in there. So finally I get back. They do some blood work. My my uh, carbon monoxide levels in my bloodstream were still life-threatening. The doctor said, how long have you been in the waiting room? I'd been in there for hours. He said, I don't, I don't even know how you're still breathing. Don't even know how you're still breathing. So if I had taken that nap, come on. If I had, ta- if I had laid down that day, if my mother had not said, come on, she's listening to the podcast. Thank you, Mom. Come on. That would have been the end of life for me. Because what had been happening is this chimney that the boiler was vented in through in the cellar, the sediment from the inside of that chimney had been falling down, right, for years, for decades. And the sediment had risen past the pipe where it vented into the chimney. So all of the carbon monoxide was just continually being, you know, poured into that house. The guys that were with me, they didn't experience the symptoms that I did, right, because they were all chain smokers, so they lived outside of the house just as much as they lived inside of the house. It's the only time in life that smoking will save your life. (laughs) And the only thing that was going to fix me, the only thing that was going to fix me was just to get oxygen into my bloodstream. Carbon monoxide poisoning is suffocating while you're breathing. That's what it is. Your body becomes so oxygen depleted that your body shuts down and eventually dies. Grace convenes us not just for what God wants to do in you, but it convenes us but because of the deposit of God in us that we bring when we come. Every single Saturday, people come into this room and they are spiritually dying. And as we worship together, as we welcome one another, as we dig into God's word like we are, as we pray over each other like we did just a few minutes ago, I'm telling people that are spiritually dying, you know what they're doing? They're breathing in life. They're breathing in life because of the deposit of God that's in you that you took the time to share. The grace of God convenes us because he wants a room to be crowded. We don't want a crowded room because we're trying to satisfy some sick ego that we have by seeing a number. Come on. We want a crowded room because we know that for many of you, there's a deposit of God in you and people that are desperate, come on, for their spiritual life to get started, they come in here dying and the God in you, come on, we fill this room together and all of a sudden something begins to change. If we could do some spiritual blood work, their levels are just a little bit different when they walk out of here. In Acts chapter 2, you read about the greatest move of God in the history of the world. 120 people gathered together in an upper room that led to 3,000 people come on, beginning life anew from that day forward. Why? Because they were in a room. They were expectant. They were faith-filled. There was something about the deposit of God in them that began to just fill the air around them. And as people began to breathe that in, they didn't even understand it. They just knew 
that they wanted more of it. And that's part of our ministry as devoted followers of Christ, is to allow the grace of God to convene us so that the deposit of God in us can well out of us, as Paul wrote into the church of Corinth, it's the fragrance of Christ that emanates from our lives. It begins to spiritually oxygenate the world. Come on, stand with me as we pray. This is Hebrews chapter 12. It says, therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares and run with endurance the race that lies before us. So, Father, we say today as we leave this place, we say today, Father, as we have gathered together, that we want to not just believe in grace. Come on, we want to become grace. We don't want to just believe about grace. We want grace to be in us. We want grace to define us. We want grace to characterize us. And we don't just want the grace that forgives. We want the grace that conquers Jesus, we say to you, for us individually, but also for us as a church family, sit upon the throne of who we are and vanquish the humanity that neglects us, that suffers us, that drives us away from you. We want that to melt like wax. We want it to melt like wax. And we look expectantly to you, Jesus, because we know that you are a conquering king who is a gift giver. And let it be that every gift that you want to bestow upon us, that we would open up our arms wide and we would trust whatever measure you bestow upon us so that we can be about building your kingdom in a broken and dying in world. And may it be, O oh God, that we would allow your grace to convene us that we would make being together a priority every week, that we would see that there is a deposit of who you are inside of us, even when we don't feel like coming. Come on, that we are going to oxygenate that room and people who came in dying, come on, they're going to leave living. In the name of Jesus Christ, and everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week. Setting my heart.